Because no two investors are the same, one size doesn't fit all. There's more to it. At S&P Dow Jones Indices, we offer index strategies for all types of investments. Comprehensive ESG solutions, core retirement strategies, multi-asset diversification, and new ways of thinking about risk management and income. They're all in one place. Express your investment views and give yourself the freedom to go anywhere with S&P Dow Jones Indices. Search Indexology on the web or hashtag Indexology on Twitter and LinkedIn. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be one of my friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is just to entertain, but to educate, teach, context. Call me, 1-800-743-CNBC. Tweet me at Jim Kramer. I have a very simple rule of thumb here in Kramerica. Always go for the easy money, not the hard money, no matter how much you might be tempted otherwise. Netflix today, after that disappointing quarter, just became the hard money. On a day where the average is seesawed in response to earnings and, of course, to some Fed comments, the Dow inching up three points, S&P gaining 0.36%, NASDAQ advancing 0.27%. You need to understand how a stock can go from easy to hard. And out of the pin action, from that particular move, can rightly or wrongly impact a host of other names as portfolio managers try to wrestle with a consistent, a consistent company that has suddenly become erratic. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is Netflix. Look, we all know the story. Most of us love using Netflix. It's the ultimate cord-cutting play. They license lots of older programming to bring you in and then add in their own homemade brilliance to keep you hooked. Because they know what people want to watch, artificial intelligence, they can make some truly great stuff like Stranger Things. The latest season hasn't even been out for a month and already has been watched by 40 million households. However, last night Netflix reported some truly heinous numbers. This has always been a subscriber growth story, but this time they didn't grow subscribers here in the U.S. They actually lost. That's the first time they've lost subs in the U.S. since 2011. Earnings? I down year over year. Even International couldn't save them. Despite predicting that they'd sign up 5 million subs worldwide, they only signed up 2.7 million. Most important signups were particularly weak in areas where they raised prices, typically by 13 to 18%. I'm going to repeat that. Areas where they raised prices were particularly weak. Now, we've seen Netflix stumble before, especially maybe after a price hike. But how about like this? In one fell swoop, Netflix went from easy money to hard money. In a single quarter, Wall Street went from sanguine to skeptical. So skeptical that the stock lost more than 10% of its value today. And for all I know, it could have more downside. Why? Well, I'll play myself. I got it wrong. I believe Netflix was the ultimate bargain between the movies, the shows, the ability to binge. You can get a whole month of Netflix for less than the cost of a movie ticket. They're throwing the candy. Forget about it. So I figured people wouldn't blanch at a price increase. Yet that's exactly what happened here. We thought Netflix was the kind of company that could raise prices with impunity. If that's not the case, we need to take it out of the bin of consistency and put it in the bin of episodic and perhaps even, heaven forbid, dispensable. You see, until last night, Netflix was my go-to for entertainment, meaning I hadn't looked at my bill in years. I have no idea what I pay for Netflix. I mean, come on. I got my own funny picture up when they asked me who's watching. 
Uh, a few years ago, in preparation for interviewing the brilliant Reed Hastings, the CEO, I called customer service at Netflix at 2.30 a.m. to ask a question. I wanted to know what was my best bet for a movie about the Russians going from Stalingrad to Berlin to end the war in the East. And a very nice woman told me to watch a movie that was actually directed by Stalin. It wasn't bad. I mean, I will gladly double what I'm currently paying for Netflix, whatever the heck it is. But it turns out I found out last time I'm not representative of the broader customer base. In other words, I no longer think that Netflix is like Costco or Amazon Prime or Spotify or Apple, all services people pay for without thinking about it. If it's not part of that club, you have to guess how many people are willing to shell out what they're paying. And if you have to guess, it's no longer easy money. It's hard. It's not just Netflix. I got another one. For the longest time, the easy money in Big Pharma was Johnson & Johnson. Best pipeline, best management, best balance sheet. Terrific growth in actual pharmaceuticals, not just a sales force. Suddenly, though, this one's become the hard money. You know, the other day, J&J reported an excellent quarter. Yet at the exact same time, there was a story about how the company might be on the hook for billions because of its role in the opioid epidemic. The authorities in Oklahoma went after J&J tooth and nail. Oh, by the way, but of course, two other companies for pushing these painkillers that can ruin lives. Now, the other companies were a lot worse than J&J. They wrote some checks. They settled. J&J sold far fewer opioids, and they did so responsibly. But they're trying to fight it out in court because they didn't do anything wrong. And the stock's getting killed for it. I think J&J... Absolutely is right to defend itself. They may have been on the hook for less than 1% of Oklahoma's opioid sales. We own it for my travel trust, but it has been brutal. And this upcoming opioid verdict could be the tip of the iceberg in terms of litigation, including all the cases based on the allegations that J&J knowingly sold people talc that was loaded with asbestos, which, again, I think is wrong. I've read the pleadings. I've done the homework. I've interviewed the terrific CEO, Alex Gorski. Well, I believe the story he told right here on this set. There are new cases coming from all over, and it's become a dangerous whack-a-mole story. My travel trust sold some of it when it was trading in the 140s. I didn't want to. Now it's all the way back to 132. I don't want to buy more. I don't want to rebuild. Maybe wait until it goes to the 120s. Maybe a little more de-risk. In the end, the easy money in pharma right now is in Novartis, which reported a fantastic quarter, amazing guidance, best of all, no controversy. Let me give you two more examples. Two days ago, CSX, big East Coast Railroad. Well, what did they do? They reported what I can handily have to tell you was a very disappointing quarter. And you know what? Why? Because the CEO seemed baffled by the weak economy and the stock got crushed. But then Lance Fritz, the CEO of Union Pacific, which is a West Coast Railroad, came on our air this morning and he didn't seem baffled at all. In fact, he was downright bullish. CSS is a train wreck of hard money. Union Pacific is all aboard with easy money. Now, maybe you think I'm being a chicken, that the real reward goes to the bold and the brave. The people who are willing to wait into Netflix right here and make a stand. The ones who decide that J&J will win all the cases or that CSX has figured out what went wrong and things can turn around. That, my friends, is totally wrong. Through many years of experience, I can tell you that this kind of bravery rarely pays off. Sometimes things are as straightforward as they seem. Costco is now cheaper than Netflix because it can get away with raising the price of membership. Novartis is a better buy than J&J, even with the stock back to its all-time high and selling for 17 times sexual earnings. As for CSX versus Union Pacific, are you kidding me? Being a hero looks great in the movies, but it's a silly way to invest. If you really believe that Netflix has turned things around because of the first few weeks of the quarter and quarter being good, well, good for you. I'd love to give Reed Hastings the benefit of the doubt. But between the price increases and all the content they're losing as competitors ramp up their own streaming services, it turns out that some people really do care about the price of Netflix. And when they raise price, people stop subscribing. This makes it a much less compelling story. Bottom line, some companies are so straightforwardly fabulous that they are easy money. 
Netflix used to be part of that club, but not anymore. I'm not saying it's a bad story. Uh, maybe it's already making a comeback. But then again, maybe it's not. And that's why it's hard money. And I'd much rather chase easy money every day of the week than hard money ever. And it is that simple. Raphael in Florida. Raphael. Good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. My question is for Stitch Fix. It reported about two months ago pretty good numbers, but it hasn't picked up yet. Well, let's give it a chance. It's a young, unseasoned company. But I have to tell you, having met Katrina Lake, I am totally impressed. I think that they've got a good business going and that the stock is a buy right here. The quarter was good, by the way. Let's go to Scott in Florida. Scott. Hey, Jim, how you doing? Scott, I'm doing well, thank you. All right. Uh, my question's on UNH. What's up with UNH? They beat I am earnings. furious they about UNH. For the rest of I am 2019, furious. And they're still down $6 a share. It was a great quarter, but then middle of the conference call, they dropped a bomb about a piece of business that made it so that you could not get uh, the right estimates of what they did. So it looked like they boosted, but they didn't. And they did it in the middle of the call. It reversed the stock, and it went down. And I'm getting tired of this. I'm getting tired of the inconsistency in United Health. My travel trust owns it, and I threw something today. I haven't thrown things in ages. I mean, I haven't thrown anything since Saturday. All right, take it easy. Remember that being a hero is a silly way to invest. It's okay to seek out easy money. On Man Money Tonight, Bank of America just hauled in a record first half profit. But will the looming rate cuts take a bite out of the stock in the longer term? I'm sitting down with the CEO to find out. Then, ever heard of a $34 billion bargain? I'm conducting an investigation to find out whether IBM overpaid for Red Hat or whether it was a good deal. And after reporting a top and bottom line miss this morning, I'm going to sit down with the CEO of Nucor find out what's ahead for this great American steel company. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC. Craziest thing about this market, the banks are back. So far this earnings season, the major banks, other than, say, Wells Fargo, have reported some spectacular quarters. Just yesterday morning, Bank of America delivered what CEO Brian Moynihan called the best quarter in the company's history. You know I'm a fan of this one. I'm also a customer, full disclosure. Bank of America has transformed itself into the nation's leading online bank. They have the best digital and mobile technology by far, and it's helping them break in deposits and fees. In fact, the deposits grew by $75 billion, and half that came from the consumer, who, by the way, we learned from Brian is feeling flush. 
It wasn't perfect. Of course, Bank of America's net interest income was stagnant, which is what you'd expect with an inverted yield curve. But the company started to make real inroads in investment banking, too. Equities, great. Plus, at 10 times earnings, ridiculously cheap. I think it's a buy, but don't take it from me. Let's check in with Brian Moynihan, the chairman and CEO of Bank of America. He had a better sense of the quarter and where his company's headed. Mr. Moynihan, welcome back to Bad Money. Good to see you, Brian. Good to see you, Jim. Thank you so much. Have a seat. Brian, I thought that this quarter was a breakout quarter, and you can criticize it or not, but I think that you have crossed a level where you are a technology company that is really fabulous at banking. Is that a fair statement? It's absolutely a fair statement because at the end of the day, we have really talented teammates, the computers that they operate and the technology operate, and then, frankly, buildings to keep it all dry so it works. And that's, that's what we have. And, and those t- teammates use those computers to, to either build them so clients can work themselves or work with them to help serve clients. And, you know, 37 uh, million digital customers, 28 million mobile customers, the numbers are just rolling. And, by the way, what we highlight in our earnings report is on the institutional side. You're seeing it in the Treasury services. It's, it's all been automated wires and stuff, but now the interface of the customer is much more automated. But what I'm hearing is recurring revenue. So even though I mentioned this net interest margin, it hasn't meant anything. If the Fed cuts rates, we were supposed to sell banks. Right. So I'm wondering whether there isn't something different happening, which is that your, your streams of revenue are really building and your costs are going down, the efficiency. Yeah, and that efficiency, again, is driven by the technology enablement of the consumer and the wealth management customer companies, and it's always more efficient to serve it that way. Yet you have to have great people when the face-to-face meeting comes up, when the need is there. Right. And so that you know, 57% efficiency ratio, we ran about 13 and uh, 3 and, uh, billion in expenses, 13.3 billion. That is eight, seven out of the last eight quarters. We run between 13.1 and 13.3. One was a little higher. Right. But in that time, we've invested thousands of relationship management people, $3 billion a year in technology. Uh, in that time, probably 60, 70 brand new branches, retooled probably 1,000 branches. All that investment going in, at the same time, expenses flat. That's enabled by the technology. Now, uh, as a customer, and my wife does the bank in her house, uh, we, people keep hearing, well, it's a millennial bank because they have it. But I think what's really distinguishing your app is that it's not a millennial right. bank. There's too many, there's too many, not enough millennials to make those numbers. Right. It, it's ease of banking, which I never thought would happen. So you're spending a lot of money making a design that does appeal to everybody. And that's, that's the key. And by the way, you know, it, for, it, it works for uh, general consumers, it works for wealthy consumers, it works for small companies, it works for big companies. And so you're right. With that many digital customers, everybody's using it. Now, does it cohort, you know, on age a little bit younger? What I said yesterday in the earnings about millennials was more about there's a debate about whether banks like us uh, are appealing to millennials. Right. We open accounts at three times the population rate. Uh, in our new sales. We have about twice the population rate of millennials in our customer base today. They have you know, 60, 70 billion dollars of checking deposit, just the millennials and then Gen Z add another chunk on top of that. It's already a huge customer base and uh, the 16 million, uh, million customers who are digital only millennials have 200 billion dollars of investments and deposits and loans with us. It's already a big business. It, a, as a millennial only bank, it would be a, one of the biggest banks in the country, probably the fifth or sixth largest bank. Well, I think that's those people stay with people that understand that's a sticky customer. Once you get them at that age, they stay. Now, one of the things that struck me is that we've got two economies. You can tell me otherwise, but the consumer is doing so well. But then I have all these industrial companies and they're not doing that well. How do you explain that dichotomy? Well, I think, I think also you have to parse the companies which are in the global economy, which with China slowing down and Europe uh, expecting to grow faster but didn't grow as much, and the United States uh, you know, going from 3% growth to maybe mid-twos. Mm-hmm. 
the core thing is the United States economy is growing. Is it growing slower than it grew last year? Actually, not so far reportedly, but expected to slow down because the first quarter is basically equivalent to last year. And the consumer is driving that. The consumer spending at Bank of America for the first six months of the year <clears throat> was up 5.5% over last year. The year before, it was up 8.5% for the year before. So it went from about 4 or 5% to 8.5% to 5%. Well, guess what? Those two years, 2.5% two growth economies. And that's, that's what we feel. So if you're selling into China, it's 20% of your business and it's slowed down, that's hurting at the margin, but everything else is fine. So even our small and mid-sized businesses, they feel good. They're, they used to be this enthusiastic. Now they're this enthusiastic. Okay. But three years ago, they were this enthusiastic. Uh, is so that little enthusiastic <laughs> enough to be able to make it so that if Jay Powell's watching this conversation, he doesn't say, oh, boy, to cut rates might be silly? I, I'll leave that to the experts. That's up to him. But, but the evidence doesn't show that the consumer slow down. Unemployment's tight. Wages are growing. The teammates that work for us that was uh, in a low, lower part of the wage scale, 75000 and under, for the last 10 years has received 6% per year in salary and wage increases per year. Not, not, not once right, a year, 6% per year. Three to keep a talented customer, uh, uh, teammate base, you have to pay that. That's what I hear my clients saying. So wages are growing, you know, spending's growing. That's all good. Is it growing as fast as last year? No. no but is but it growing? Ba- it's growing fine. But their balance sheet is surprisingly good. You know, you always read these articles that saying they're taking down more debt. I looked at the balance sheet that was, and you're really exemplary, but there's not a lot of bad, bad loans being made. Uh, we're, we're, we're running along at levels that have been very stable. Right. 40, we had a little bit of recovery because we sold some loans, but it would have been 43 sort of pro forma basis points of charge-offs. Mm-hmm. I think we've been in a range from 41 to 43-ish for the last I don't know, eight, ten quarters in a row. And you get a little blip here, something like in the oil and gas a couple of years ago, remember? Right. This happens, right, that, that happens. But at the end of the day, it comes right back. But the key is the credit card charge-offs, year-over-year stable right. for the whole industry pretty much and us too. It's, that, those are things that, that you show the consumer has borrowing capacity left, has used their borrowing capacity right. wisely, um, and will continue, I think, to do so because they continue to make money and pay off their debts. Martin, I've known you for a long time, and one thing I think that we agree is that capitalism is pretty good, but it's been under assault. Uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren just this afternoon demonizing banks again. I, I want to give you a chance just to talk about some of the things that are important to you about what you do for workers because sure. it's pretty monumental. Yeah, if, if you think about our company, one of our basic principles is to be the best place for a person to work. And so we have, that goes across all dimensions, our diversity, our pay for performance, our uh, reskilling, our leadership development programs, our opportunity for all, all the people. Our average uh, compensation is about $140,000, $150,000 per person. That's a lot. And behind that, there's families. And so our right. health care benefits, and we insure about 400,000 people plus retirees on top of that. Uh, and, the, and the 401k and the match we have and all those things. But one of the things that's been interesting and uh, your colleagues were asking about earlier is, is going beyond. So we have a thing called life event services. The floods hit someplace, we contact every employee. Do you need anything? What do you need? We'll help you. We do that in all the events that you think, uh, think about. And so once I went, when the hurricanes last year were going on, I said to the teammate, how's the hurricane going? Think of the United States. He said, which one of the three are we working right now? Because we have people in, I think it was Singapore and Thailand at the time. So we do that. The life event service has been fascinating because along with mental wellness, the, the stress at work and can't cope question, which is something we've been working on in business in, at the American Heart Association CEO group with Alex Gorski and I have yeah. lead it, but a whole bunch of CEOs thinking about this question. We, we've realized that mental health is key. So we right. run a lot of sessions about mental health, but the part of it was interesting was we got in this question about domestic violence. So we're a company has you know a, a safe place to work, but even that 
since we started, we have about 1,500 teammates that come forward and said they needed help in the best domestic violence. Not necessarily them. Sometimes a cousin, right. sometimes a child, right. sometimes themselves, sometimes a friend. And our job is to get in and help them and get them taken care of. And you think of about a company like ours, if we have that many teammates, all companies have to be doing these kinds of things because you know, it's a company that makes good money, that invests in its teammates, that our work areas are safe. It's not, you know, there's the stress in our work is made sure. because we're, we're type A people, but it, on the other hand, it's not unsafe, and but, yet you have this happen. But what you're describing to me, we like to call it as impact per share. These people could work at a lot of different places. It's a tight labor market. Yeah. The things you're doing are to change people's lives. Yeah, so we just went, we're $17 an hour starting, $35,000 anybody that starts in our company, going to $40,000 over the next 24 months. Plus, you get full benefits. The effective rate of that $17 is about $30, $29 an hour between, between the benefits and other things. And by the way, we're not alone. Other companies do right. this too. But, but that's what corporate America does is we employ half the American population plus. We ensure half the American population plus, plus actually we employ 200 million people. And we provide these great benefits. And so the idea of capitalism, that's what capitalists do. They have to have great teammates to be successful. And we provide great benefits. And so the question for capitalism is we have to do both. Provide great returns, 16% return on equity for our shareholders this quarter, return on tangible common equity, and, and help society make progress. And you, that starts at home. And with our teammates, that starts on things like life event services. Well, you're doing it. And the stock's a buy. I don't want to be so crass as to mention money, but it's a buy. And that does matter. That's Brian Moynihan, Chairman CEO of Bank of America. You hear all the good things they're doing. It's the right thing to do. Mad Money's back in. Look at IBM Go! Last time, Big Blue reported, okay, maybe an imperfect quarter, but it was still strong enough to get the stock roaring today, up nearly 5%. More importantly, I think these results more than vindicate IBM's decision to pay $34 billion for Red Hat, the open-source software company that's become integral to helping other businesses embrace the cloud. Now, you know I've been watching this transaction like a hawk, right, ever since it was announced last October? We even had Ginny Rometty, CEO of IBM, of course, and Jim Whitehurst, CEO of Red Hat, on the show right after the deal closed earlier this month. As I've told you repeatedly, I am passionate in belief of this merger. IBM needed to boost its revenue growth by pivoting to a broader ecumenical cloud strategy. Red Hat gave them exactly what they wanted. But lately, we've been hearing a new refrain from the punditocracy. Over and over, they tell us that IBM overpaid for the Red Hat acquisition. That $34 billion, a 63% premium versus where the stock had been trading, was too much. And that it's all going to end in tears. My response... Wrong! I think the Red Hat deal made a ton of sense, and I'm going to prove it to you. It's not just that about what we saw in the latest quarter. In fact, I'll save that for last because I've been noodling on this idea for quite some time. For, first, let me uh, set the stage here. IBM has been stuck in a multi-year stock rut. In, uh, in 2013, the stock peaked at $215. But then it fell off a cliff. You can see this. Uh, tumbling to $120. I mean, this has just been miserable, right? And it's been a really rough stretch for the last three years. While IBM's bounced for those levels, every time it tried to make a sustained rally, well, you see what happened. The move fizzled. It really, this one was like a bear trap, right? A value trap. Every time it went up, 
People got excited, they jumped on it, and then boom, went right back down. Why? IBM hasn't been able to generate meaningful sales growth since 2011. That's why. I wish I could say the sales stagnated, but from 2012 through 2017, they actually shrank. In fact, in 2015, they were down nearly 12%. It was a brutal period, although some of that came from shedding empty calorie divisions. The problem was simple. IBM was too much in the wrong part of tech. They were all about selling mostly hardware and old tech at a time when the whole industry was embracing cloud-based software as a service, not on-premises. Now, IBM tried to turn things around on its own. For years, Ginny Rometty invested heavily in what she calls the strategic comparatives, the cloud, analytics, artificial intelligence. The idea here was that eventually these faster-growing businesses would offset the weakness in IBM's legacy divisions. To some extent, it worked. Last year, the company's revenue growth finally turned around. It was up uh, only 0.6%, but it was up. That's a big improvement versus the hideous declines they were experiencing four or five years ago. But it's not the kind of number that portfolio managers, particularly growth tech managers, get excited about. The thing is, even though the strategic imperatives started slow in the second half of last year, uh, we began to hear rumblings that maybe they were going to do something big, not just buy back stock and raise the dividend. And sure enough, Remedy did something drastic. She snapped up Red Hat for $190 per share, or $34 billion in cash. Best of all, she kept on CEO Jim Whitehurst, who gave me this hat. He's a terrific executive, very close to the show, by the way, who's still running Red Hat and has now joined IBM's senior management team. You know I like the deal, but what about this persistent criticism that Remedy overpaid? Okay, before I get into the weeds here, you need to know that IBM apparently wasn't the only bidder. In December, Red Hat filed a proxy statement on its pending acquisition that mentioned three other parties. Three interested parties. According to Brad Reback and uh, Steve if you read me in the lines, they were three cloud giants. Uh, Microsoft with his Azure, great quarter tonight. Alphabet, okay, and then... That's Google Web Services. Then Amazon, which is Amazon Web Services. So while that 63% premium sounds like a hefty price tag, it makes a lot more sense when you consider that there may have been other potential bidders. It was a competitive situation, people. So IBM paid what they had to pay to get the job done. But honestly, that 63% number, it's a little misleading, frankly. Now, sure, it seems like IBM paid through the nose for Red Hat if you measure the price tag versus where the stock was trading the day before the announcement. At the time, okay, it was $116 stock. IBM sold out 190 Right. We actually supported this. Well, we've been supporting it for years when it was in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. However, when you look at Red Hat, where it's been trading the last few months, or even a year before, the price seems a lot more reasonable. In June of last year, I mean, the stock was at $177, ended up getting clobbered after a couple of suboptimal quarters. So it traded down to a depressed value. But if you think Jim Whitehurst, like I do, could turn things around, and I did, then it wasn't going to stand down here for long. It was going to start climbing with or without Ginny. If you take Red Hat's average price over the year before IBM's takeover bid, you know, it's just $742. Compared to that, IBM only paid a 34% premium. In other words, I don't think they overpaid versus what this business was really worth. Then there's the qualitative argument. For years, our IBM have been trying to expand into the cloud. Red Hat is a plug-and-play company. It believes that we're still only 20% of the way into, uh, into the cloud transition, and the next step will involve shifting mission-critical workloads that are the best at this to the cloud while optimizing every business process under the sun. IBM wants to be the one-stop shop for managing your hybrid cloud IT infrastructure. Red Hat's going to make that possible. The deal takes IBM from being, let's say, a, an also-ran in the cloud, want to be really tough, and transform into a major player. What about the quantitative side? Now, this is really important. We spent a lot of time on this, too. If you still think IBM overpaid, just look at how much the cloud stocks have run since the Red Hat deal was announced. This is really important. Remember, Red Hat was one of our original seven cloud kings, along with Adobe, Salesforce, ServiceNow, Splunk, VMware, and Workday. On average, do you know that those cloud kings are up 51% since IBM told us it was buying Red Hat? 51%. 
If you look at the market capitalizations, they've increased by an average of 54%. ServiceNow was a $30 billion company. In late October, it's now a $55 billion company. VMware's going from 47 to 71. Workday's nearly doubled its market cap from $26 billion to $49 billion, while Red Hat, let's just say it didn't go up as much as a lot of these other companies. The compares. And if you look at the valuation on average, the Cloud Kings are currently selling for 54 times next year's earnings. IBM paid 46 times next year's numbers for Red Hat, okay? If anything, I've got to tell you, based on these comparisons, you could argue that they underpaid for this company. I'm not kidding. Yeah, the company got a great value, especially if they can keep Whitehurst on. Whitehurst's got to have free reign. He gave me the hat, by the way. I always thought it was like Sinatra. All right, maybe not. Finally, there's the quarter IBM just reported. While the company reported a nice earnings beat in the stock rally, there were some real hair on these results. IBM sales came in slightly weaker than expected, down 4.2% year-over-year. Cloud sales, including the, excluding the mainframe business, were only up 9%. That's down from 16% in the previous year and 18% in 2018. Ouch! Meanwhile, the legacy businesses continue to hemorrhage. Now, Red Hat was, wasn't included in these numbers, and I think it's crystal clear that they did need to do this deal if they wanted to start growing it. As Lisa Ellis from Moffitt Nathanson put it in her piece this morning, IBM second quarter 19, just in time. Red Hat enters as cloud growth sputters. The company's had a critical deceleration in the cloud business, even as the other players in the space continue to do just fine. They needed a change of direction, and that's what Red Hat gives them. It's why I still think this stock is worth owning even up here after this nice day. So the bottom line, the next time you hear someone argue that IBM overpaid for Red Hat, you remember what I just told you. You remember that the whole cloud cohort has been on fire, and IBM needed to do this deal. If anything, I think they could afford to pay more. That's how valuable it is to have Whitehurst running the business for them. Finally, IBM can return to growth mode, and that's definitely worth $34 billion. In fact, I got to tell you, I think the stock's put in the bottom. I think the stock is a... Bye, bye, bye! Susan in Texas. Susan! Hey, Jim. Thank you for taking my call and all that you do for us home gamers. Oh, I have so absolutely. much learned. Thank you. And, and I enjoy listening to your interviews. Thank you. In February 2018, you featured Zebra Technologies, and it steadily climbed for over a year from 121 to 237 for a 96% increase. Until this April, when it reported a beat in earnings and took its first significant pullback, taking it down to 166 for a 30% decrease. At that time, I thought it was just profit-taking right. its position. It quickly was climbing back up this past June and July until 10 days ago, when it took a hit high of 218 down to 177 today, right. an right. 18% decline. So what's going on with this stock? Is okay, it well, uh, I, first of all, thank you for the kind comments. Second, it has been a big winner. But third, here's what matters. Uh, there's a uh, company, Honeywell, has a very similar division uh, to what Zebra does in terms of, of uh, warehouse automation. And that business uh, turned down. It was actually quite shocking. I think there are other things involved that, uh, that Honeywell did well in, that it was one of the biggest leaders today. But that's Zebra's bread and butter. It's their wheelhouse. So I think the people have to re- reassess whether Zebra's seeing the same pressure that Honeywell is. And if they do, sell, sell, sell. They're going to sell. But you've got a good gain. So let's think about that. $34 billion is a lot of money. I get it. But IBM paid what they needed for an asset, Red Hat, that's helping them return to growth mode. Much more mad money ahead. It's been nearly a year and a half since the 25% steel tariffs went into effect. 
Fresh off today's earnings, I'm asking new core CEO how the company has fared, what investors can expect from the market next, and it's going to surprise you. Then I'm highlighting one of the biggest mistakes investors have made during earnings season. Please don't let yourself fall, fall prey to it. All your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Sixteen months ago, President Trump slapped a 25% tariff on imported steel in an effort to protect the beleaguered American steel industry against a rapacious China, which subsidizes the production of cheap steel and then encourages its mills to dump the stuff all over the world, especially the United States. You know, I think that the underlying logic of the trade war makes perfect sense. The Chinese government has consistently been a really bad actor on trade, and we needed to show them we mean business. However, at the time, we recommended Nucor, the best-run steel company in the world, as a play on the tariffs. You know what? In retrospect, I think we may have been too early because of some, some events that occurred that I did not foresee. Just this morning, Nucor reported an imperfect quarter with slightly weaker than expected sales and earnings. But because I think the Fed will cut interest rates, I expect cyclicals like Nucor to get a major boost. And I think that things might actually finally be looking up, given that there are declining steel inventories and the good news about a decline in foreign dumping for the tariffs, so they're not coming back. Let's check in with John Ferrioli. He's the chairman and CEO of Nucor to learn more about the quarter and what it will take to get the stock back on track. Mr. Ferrioli, welcome back to Man Money. Hi, Jim. Thank you for having me on the show. John, I am hearing when I read the conference call and listening to what Nucor's been up to, there have been what I've been waiting for, a couple of price hikes. I know the steel business. When that happens, it's time to pounce. Tell me what's going on. Well, we have had two price increases on our sheet products over the last four weeks. The first one took place about three weeks ago, and we did uh, we were able to collect just about all of the $40. The second increase was also $40 just a week ago, and it's too early to tell how we're collecting that, but we have uh, high hopes of being able to collect it because we see our lead times going out, expanding out from about three weeks to about six weeks. Now, I think for those who are uninformed about the steel industry, these sound like they may not be major. But isn't that how almost every turn has really begun? It, it is. And, you know, uh, you started the show by mentioning we had a weaker than hope for first uh, second quarter. But let's bear in mind that the first half of this year for Nucor was our third best first half of a year in our company's history. So despite a challenging market because of weather conditions and 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 uh, inventories that were bloated. Our team did a great job in operating in a difficult situation and presenting a very good first half of the year for our company. John, I'm used to the Chinese seeing these price increases and flooding our great nation with their cheap and I think imperfect steel. Will that happen again? Well, the administration and the Commerce Department have taken many steps to prevent that from happening. Uh, we're very pleased with the results uh, that are happening as a result of the tariffs. The anticipated response was domestic capacity coming online to replace the lower imported steel, and that's exactly what happened. So things are becoming more normalized. Last year, demand was very strong, and as a result, people were worried that they wouldn't be able to get the steel they needed when imports went down. The domestic industry, Nucor included, responded by making sure that we gave our customers what they needed to keep their customers happy. And with the strong end demand use that we saw in 2018, Jim, we see it increase, increasing right into 2019. So it's carrying forward. We still see end use demand very strong. What we saw in the last quarter, in the first half of the year, 
was inventory destocking by our service center customers, getting rid of that overblown inventory that they had last year, and we see a more normalized ordering pattern from our service center and our OEM customers occurring now. I know something about Nucor from when I met the, the great Ken Arverson, which is that the company grows when it's not necessarily perceived to be the right time to grow because they want to be ready. They also have the best workforce and, most importantly, the lowest cost. Will you be able to maintain that? And would this not be one of those moments, since they can't flood us with imports, that Nucor might be able to show you how much it can really make when things get cranking? Well, you're right. We continue to invest during the tougher times. We've done that during the first half of this year, you, I'm sure, know we have about $3.5 billion of investments. And what we're investing in is our capabilities, not just our capacity. So as we invest in our capabilities to produce higher-grade steels to better provide solutions to our customers' needs, but the, we're also investing in our capability to keep and enhance our low-cost position in projects where we're improving our logistical uh, locations towards to, to, uh, to our customers and to our, uh, to our scrap suppliers. So logistics plays a big part in steel. We're investing to get closer to our customer, closer to our supply, and also investing to increase the capability of our mills. Now, John, I know that you uh, are a gentleman and you're not going to uh, slam your competitors, but some of the other guys did not handle their balance sheet well during a period where Nucor had exceptional balance sheet uh, management. Is it possible that you might be the theoretical last man standing in America to be able to take advantage when prices do go higher, although they will still be below all the worries that we heard about from the media when they put through the tariffs? You know, absolutely, Jim. You make a great point. We heard all this from the media that steel would be so highly priced with the tariffs that customers could not take care of their customers in, in appliances and downstream businesses. If you look at the pricing today, it is about $100 a ton under what it was before the tariffs went into effect. So the pricing today is lower than before the tariffs. We said all along last year that this is an issue of supply and demand. It got a little bit out of whack last year. Now it's back normalized and pricing is normalized also. Well, to me, that sounds, John, that's the loaded spring I've been looking for. I know things got a little <laughs> delayed because of stocking and destocking, but this is the moment that I think I should be, have been, I should have prepared for. Uh, it's time, isn't it? Well, let me put it this way. I sleep very easily at night. I know we got a great team. We have great and use demand. The combination of those two things can be a great deal of confidence in Nucor's future. Well, terrific. Let's leave it at that. That's John Ferriol, president and chairman of C CEO of Nucor. Once again, the best steel company in the world. May have money's back after the break. Abbreviated TV channels, 200. Shows like Mad Money and The Profit help put the B business in this four-letter channel. Rowie. What is CNBC? Yes. What can I say? That man is a genius. He has horse sense. It is time! It's time for the lightning round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski daddy. Time for the lightning round. I'm going to start with Omen in California. Omen. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. I want to ask you about Tesla today. Whether you love the stock or you believe they're on the road to bankruptcy, it's undeniable that they've transformed the automotive industry. Well, With that's good. Said, we should write a nice book about them, and we should send a kiss to Elon Musk. Why do I have to buy the stock? 
I, I'm going to congratulate him for making a lot of cars. I think that does the, I mean, that's the ticket. Let's go to Tyler in Michigan. Tyler. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. First time caller, big fan of the show. Thank you. What are your thoughts on EPR properties? They have hit it out of the park. I've been steadfastly behind them since the 50s. Bye, bye, bye. Unlike most of these good time Charlies, and it's been right. Lucas in Pennsylvania. Lucas. Oh, yeah, Jim. How's everything going? Everything's going really well. How about you? I'm great. Listen, my question for you today is about Flags Entertainment ticker SIS. Too hard. It's become too hard. I don't like too hard. That's an example of hard money. I like easy money. Oreen in Pennsylvania. Oreen. Hello. Hi, Jim. Hey, Oreen. Uh, what you? I want to know is I have Coca-Cola for a long time. Should okay. I trade it for another beverage? No, you got stock? a 3% yield. James Quincy's doing a good job. It's got the premium mobile as always does. And boy, you sound like that you're from k just like my ma. Same exact accent. Let's go to Charlie in Pennsylvania. Charlie! Jim, thank you for the guidance. Of course. Oracle Full Market. Your precepts and accounts have been invaluable. I'm looking at a regional that has done remarkably well in a lower interest rate environment. And I expect a divvy interest uh, or a divvy rate uh, rise shortly. Uh, talking about community bank systems, regional okay. bank. I don't want that community bank. I'm sorry. That is one that will be hurt by lower rates. Uh, we've got Bank of America. We have Goldman Sachs. We have J.P. Morgan. We have Citi. That's all we need. It's the big four. I need New Ryan in Iowa. New Ryan. Hello. Yeah, thanks for all that you do for our home gamers. Long time listener, first time caller. In April, the executive of, of Elder Biopharmaceuticals was on your show. Right. I researched the stock and bought it. Uh, since then, the stock is down 30, almost 30%. Yeah, Should I buy it's not been exemplary. It's not been exemplary. Um, it is a spec. Uh, you're just hoping that one of the drugs pays off. They got a lot of shots on goal, and I think that that is absolutely uh, good. But the late-stage migraine has just proven to be okay. Okay. Let's go to Charles in California. Charles! Hey, greetings from Hollywood. All right. About five weeks ago, you recommended the three Zs, Zscaler, Zebra, and uh, um, Zendex. I yes, I love oh my God. Zscaler, how can I help you? Um, I put my money into Zana Corp. Z-A-N. Is but it a hope? Zana. You wanted Zana. No, I'm saying that it's Zscale and Zendex. You don't want Dana because that is a D. And that is also not a great stuff. Uh, no Dana, only Zool. Zool, Zendesk, and Zscaler. And that, ladies and gentlemen, inclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Listen to me. There is no cure for stupid. That's how I feel every morning when I see traders jump in the gun in pre-market trading. Every quarter I say the same thing. Every quarter people don't listen. Trying to trade off the headlines during earnings season is a mugs game. You have no idea what's going on underneath those silly headlines, so you have no one to blame but yourself if and when the stock in question reverses and runs you over. That's why I always tell you, wait for the conference call. I know it's boring before you pull the trigger. Just look at J.B. Hunt, giant trucking company. When J.B. Hunt reported earlier this week, the stock initially traded down three bucks, blink of the eye, for only turning around and closing up five. Eight-point swing for anyone who was bold enough and smart enough and not stupid enough, like the sellers right there. 
All right, listen, I understand the confusion. See, what happens is during earnings season, the headlines come so fast and furious that I think a lot of those headlines are written by machines. They're not great at capturing nuance. So when J.B. Hunt reported the machines used an algorithm that said that the company had slashed estimates because of weakness, they got it wrong. Machines were wrong. If you waited for the conference call, you would have heard management say they were disappointed about some line items. But generally, they told a story of growth despite rough conditions. It was a lot like what happened today with Union Pacific. People had sold UNP stock down hard because CSX, another but very different railroad, reported an awful quarter yesterday. But then today, Union Pacific told us that they're still doing well and could do even better if the president decides to be less combative on trade. I mean, look at this. Stock poll voted nearly 6%. Hey, how about Honeywell, HOM? This morning, the company reported a set of numbers that seemed to reflect serious weakness, particularly with a one division that involves automation of warehouses. A huge swing uh, from up to down in that safety and productivity solutions business. Uh, that is the best automator because Amazon uses them. The stock had already pulled back hard yesterday in part because of a bogus read-through from Textron. And it also ran an aerospace company that had a big quarter. But holy cow, what an incredible buying opportunity. Just as sellers were banging down the stock, CEO Darius Damchek was explaining how Honeywell's aerospace business is much stronger than expected. And aerospace is their most important division, three times larger than the safety and productivity segment. Bingo! That's how you get a fabulous snapback, and bing, the stock closes up 3%. What can I say? If you try to trade stocks based on the headlines during earnings season, the market will make a fool out of you because there's really not humans writing the stupid headlines. Sometimes it's pure pin action. I mean, this morning, Kramer fave AMD, and it remains completely my, my absolute fave. It caught a rare downgrade from Mizuho. Granted, this semiconductor stock has had already an epic run, so I can't blame anyone for telling you to take a little profit. But that downgrade gave sellers ammo to wreck the whole group. As a result, Lamb Research, LRCX, my fave, big semiconductor equipment maker, not a semi company, but an equipment maker, got slammed. Big mistake. Why? Because another semiconductor equipment named ASML had just made a bold call the very morning in Europe that the bottom is in for this segment of the industry. Boom! Lamb came right back up in the stock ultimately gaining 3.4%, one of the biggest changes from down to up I've seen in ages. Anyone who sold the stock off of AMD downgrade, you're an idiot! A chowderhead. I don't know how many different ways I can say this. Don't mess around with pre-market trading during earnings season, Sparky. Don't buy or sell anything based on earnings until you've listened to the actual conference call, Chief. The headlines are not enough, and they will often mislead anyone who's too sugar happy. Nobody's making you swing at these curveballs, sunshine. Just be patient and keep your bat on your shoulder and you have all the information. It's not that hard. Stick with Craig. Microsoft is great tonight. Like I said, there's always a morgue somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mid Money. I'm Drew Kramer. See you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.